the National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Just in case you don't know, the Irish Times is producing a daily confronting Corona podcast and it has updates on all the developments in this constantly changing situation. You can find it on irishtimes.com or wherever you get your podcasts and it really is worth listening to. We're at more than 5,700 confirmed cases of the virus now and more than 200 people have died from COVID-19. Those figures, of course, come with the caveat that they are the cases we know about, the ones who've been confirmed after testing positive. But it's safe to say there are others who also have the virus and who have unfortunately died from it. We can only imagine what those people and the families and friends of theirs are going through. Some good news is that women seeking an abortion during the coronavirus outbreak will no longer need to visit a GP in most cases under new guidelines issued by the Department of Health on Tuesday evening. And we are very glad here on the Women's Podcast to hear about that. Later on, we'll be talking to one of the many, many women on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Catherine Motherway is consultant and ethicist at University Hospital Limerick and president of the Intensive Care Society of Ireland. Also on the podcast today, we want to talk about another pandemic, the global domestic abuse pandemic. We know that statistically, it's likely that among our tens of thousands of listeners, there are some women who, by staying at home and not being able to access friends or family or even leave the house, are facing real danger from within. Perhaps you have a friend in a worrying situation like this. And even if this issue has never touched your life in any way, we think it's important. We give time to it and really dig down into the added pressures some women are experiencing at this already scary time. So we will be talking to the CEO of Women's Aid, Sarah Benson, and to a woman who knows what it's like firsthand to be in an abusive relationship. It's not easy listening, but I think it's really important that we don't turn away from the very real and dangerous situations some people, mostly women, find themselves in because of this pandemic. 
Before we talk about that, I wanted to mention an email that came to us from Australia and thanks so much to all of you who've sent us encouragement, kind words and suggestions for what we should be covering at this time. Our email is thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Carol Omer from Australia, hello Carol, has suggested that at some point we cover the way that many of us have been connecting back with nature during lockdown, the birdsong, the scenery within our two kilometres and just really appreciating everything like the cherry blossoms, the sea, if we're lucky enough to live near it. And those things that in our other life before Corona, we might not have appreciated as much as we should have. Carol also suggested we do something on crafternoons which the crafty among you will know means the way some people are getting out the knitting and embroidery and their dusty paintbrushes and rediscovering their crafty side. Two great suggestions, which we will be coming back to at some stage. Thanks very much for those. Carol Omer, all the way from Australia. Now, later, as I said, we'll be talking about domestic abuse. But before that, I wanted to bring you a conversation I had with Dr. Catherine Motherway, a woman you might be familiar with from her appearances on television and other media during this time. She's very much on the front line. She's the current president of the Intensive Care Society of Ireland, and she's one of the many women in this country we need to be grateful for at the moment. I began by asking her to tell us about when she first heard of COVID-19. We first heard the word coronavirus. I'd say I was away in early January, so I wasn't actually looking at the news with that great, great interest. So I suppose it was mid-January we had heard that there was an outbreak of a coronavirus, which is a SARS-like virus of an outbreak in, in China. And initially, I suppose because we knew SARS wasn't very transmissible, even though it was it, it, it was um, a difficult disease, I wouldn't have been as concerned about it in terms of its worldwide potential until late January when the WHO declared it as a public health emergency. And at that point, I was also away with some colleagues, um, and we began to look at that map that St. Johns Hopkins, I don't know if you're familiar with it, the map with the red dots that has become one very large red blob now. So we started looking at that, and and then we started to get, this particular bunch of people were medical, we started to get a bit worried about the potential for this to create um, multiple outbreaks. And we knew, like, at that stage, I think maybe we'd had some um, transmission in Europe. There was um, a ski resort, I think, in Europe where there was a a transmission. And that's when we began to get worried about it, and it began to come a bit real for us. You know, because one of the difficulties, I think, with the coronavirus is that, you know, initially when people saw about it, it was over there in China. And then it was over there in Italy. And then yeah. suddenly it was in Dublin. And now I think everybody knows it's everywhere. And it's become a very real thing. But I think it took us a long time to realize, uh, you know, how real it was. And then, it, you know, it's only about 100 days, I suppose, since this all started. But our life has changed um, fairly significantly yeah. um, in that period of time. So, yes, we were. I was aware of it in January. Was I worried about it? No. Did I begin to worry about it in early February? Yes. Did I revise our surge plans for um, pandemic preparedness in our hospital when I came back from that annual leave? Yes. Did I do that fairly promptly? Most definitely. And um, then we started to prepare when we saw the spread. And then when Italy broke, it became, a, you know, a, a really, really real thing. Um, so for us, that's, I think, when the penny finally dropped, even though we had begun to prepare before the news initially came. 
Now, we've come quite a bit of a way since then in terms of cases. And unfortunately, the death toll keeps rising as well here. Uh, so how I'd be interested to know how your day to day life has changed since the outbreak in terms of what your job looked like before and what it looks like now. Um, well, our job, my job is a combination of, of anesthesiology and intensive care. So I normally do one week in ICU and then I do the rest in anesthesiology. So what has happened, obviously, in, 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 in preparing for this particular crisis is a lot of our elective surgical activity has ceased. So we essentially no longer do that much anesthesia. So my job has been focused predominantly on preparing for the surge, which um, is, is, you know, has, has begun to arrive in, um, in, the, in the West. But, and also I have the I've been involved in a lot of activity in terms of preparing and I've obviously been working in the ICU. And our ICU capacity in the west of Ireland has yet to be um, significantly impacted, but it is beginning to be impacted in the last few days. So we've been preparing for the surge. I've done very little anesthesiology and I've gone to an awful lot of meetings which have been necessary for us to totally rearrange our hospital in a way which has included everything from increasing oxygen supplies to, you know, starting out what surgical cases we can't do, how we're going to train other staff um, in terms of medical staff in helping us for the work that we anticipate might happen. And the other thing that's happened to me personally is I've gotten involved in um, in, in talking to people like you, Rush, in the media, not something <laughs> that I've ever done before in my life. You're handling that very well, as well as you do your other job. A lot of your work in ICU at the moment is it's dealing with families of loved ones who are critically ill. So I'm just wondering how that interaction is, how you're finding that. It must be so difficult talking to people who can't be with the people that they love the most at this really terrible time. Now, that, because I've done mostly call, I haven't been involved that much, but it is very difficult. And we've um, different hospitals are coping with this in different ways. We are obviously using the phone a lot, and we've always used the phone a lot, but we've never delivered bad news over the phone in our entire lives. And now we've had to do that, which is not something we like to do. We are using FaceTime, Skype, whatever we can in order to get visual images um, with people. And we are obviously um, finding that really strange. And we've also got additional help from patient, patient liaison activities for people so that, you know, most people really understand that, um, you know, it, 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 they can't be with their loved ones, even though I'd say they're finding it very difficult. And in fact, we're finding it very difficult too because it's so different. It's so strange not to have families in and around um, with us. But it's obviously for their own safety and for the safety of, of everybody that we've done this. And this is sort of a pretty common procedure worldwide. But that has been difficult. And not something we're used to but it's something we're unfortunately getting used to and we're doing our level best to ensure that we're as open and transparent and give them as much information as they need um basically and that's what we're trying to do sometimes they are in together so you can go up and meet the relative on the ward i know some of my colleagues have had to do that so maybe a husband and wife maybe we'll go up and talk to one of the residents one of them in the icu and we certainly do that but um, that isn't always possible so, so we're doing our best to communicate. Yeah, the way the way you're talking about it before, if you have to communicate that someone unfortunately has died, you would be saying that face to face with someone. That would be Absolutely. where you'd be doing that. And so you've had to you've and had you'd to touch that. them. Yeah. And you'd shake hands with them. And you yeah. might even occasionally hug them. Mm. 
and you can't do that anymore. Like, giving bad news and physical distancing at the same time is not within the nature of the Irish human being, certainly not with the Irish human being that you're currently talking to. So I would not infrequently hug relatives or shake hand, always shake hand with them like you normally would when you give them bad news. So, like, I mean, even, I mean, I've had to do that um, myself without actually, um, with the family who were in the hospital and, uh, you know, so I, it was so difficult to talk to a group of people with a mask on and they couldn't see my face and not be able to give them an old hug because I'd, talk, I'd given them bad news at the time. Um, that was difficult, I have to say. Very difficult. Yeah, it sounds unbearable. And so I'm just wondering about when people's loved ones die. Often what is of some comfort or definitely something a part of the grieving process is being with them physically, being with the body, um, and they can't do that either. Are you able to in any way help with that through technology or is that out of the question? Well, we have offered, um, we have offered some families, you know, um, you know, video imaging and stuff like that. Now, I'm not totally familiar with the actual total um, restrictions that have been placed on them in, in the funeral homes, but I believe they're quite significant. Um, and um, I think what we're going to do in our hospital is we're going to create a memory book and we're going to get whoever is with the patient when they died to write out their thoughts, their feelings and stuff like that. So that maybe, you know, in a, in a better time that we'll be able to go back to that book with families and say, well, Josephine was with them. This is what they thought at the time. This is what they did. And if they're you know, the people are religious or they're not religious, maybe they'll have said a prayer if they are, maybe they'll have read something or maybe they'll have done something to try and help. And I think that might be of some comfort to people down the line, I hope. So we're going to work on that in, in our intensive care unit. And I'd say other units will do various things to try and make some form of memory to the fact that we have had to do end of life differently in Ireland than we traditionally would have done. Um, and we're quite different in the way we deal with death than other um, places we have our own way of doing it and the way we normally do it has been is now different and it's going to be quite difficult for people I think that memory book sounds really uh, important and, and will probably be very special for families when you talk about patients who are coming in uh, doctor who who are the kinds of people you're seeing come into ICU because we know the the talk about this is something that affects uh, predominantly people who are older or who, who have underlying medical conditions but there's also young people being affected and people who are healthy. So can you just Absolutely. talk to us a bit about that? They say the median age is sort of in the mid-60s. Now, median means that half of the people who are admitted are over 60, mid-60s, and half the people are below mid-60s. And I consider the mid-60s extremely young because I'm not that far from it. <laughs> um, so over half of the patients are under the age of 63 and 64. So um, we are seeing people in their 30s, 40s and 50s being admitted and requiring critical care with this disease. So, and that's that's not. We do see people who are young who get viral pneumonia every year, um, but obviously there's a, a lot of this disease around, and nobody is immune. That's why it's such a big it's a, such a big problem. So we are seeing older people, obviously, and we but we are also seeing a significant number of younger people who we would hope will do quite well in intensive care, but they are getting sick and they're getting quite sick, and they don't all have something else wrong with them. Over three quarters of them do, but about a quarter don't thus far. Okay. 
So that is, yeah. you know, that is sobering for those of us who are young and um, think we're immune. Nobody is immune. So I think it needs to be really pointed out to the public that everybody needs to be really careful. They need to be careful for themselves, but they also need to be careful that they don't pass it on to anybody else who might be vulnerable. So you have to have two thoughts in your head when you're doing the social distancing. Number one, you're protecting yourself from getting it. Number two, if you if you got it, you might give it to your mother or your father or your grandfather or maybe your brother who might have something wrong with them. So you, you sort of two thought processes in your mind when you're trying to do and comply with the restrictions, which are very difficult. Yeah. What's your experience with access to the personal protection equipment? Because we've heard a lot about that, whether there's enough of it. Thus far, our experience in our institution has been good, but there is a consistent worry about it. So to be fair, our store, our procurement officer is really good. We've had a significant number of donations from industry. We are we do have worries every day about there being a tight timeline in terms of the next lot being delivered and what we're using. We are trying to be innovative and we are reusing some single-use stuff which safely to try and ensure that we make us safe and the others safe. So goggles, for instance, which are meant to be disposed of, we're, re- we're re-sterilizing those or we're decontaminating them. We are looking at making sure we can, you can sometimes use the same set of personal protective equipment to see several patients um, and still be safe for you and be safe for the patients. So to do that, you create what we call hot zones. And in that hot zone, you wear the PPE and you deal with the patients in that zone. So the PPE protects you. And then over the PPE, you'll wear stuff that will protect the patient um, and you'll change that stuff every time. So we are doing a lot of stuff to try and be economical with it. But there is no doubt it is the single most important worry that we all have in all of the hospitals about ensuring we have enough of it because it's really important to protect the health staff because, well, number one, you don't want to get sick and you don't want to bring it back to your families, but most importantly, you want to be well and to be able to come to work so that you can take care of people. Some countries are finding success with um, everybody wearing masks, like the general population, and there's you know people making their own masks now safely, I think ones that actually work. Would you be an advocate for that? I'm not, actually, and I know that this is a hotly debated topic. I'd be an advocate of the physical distancing. Now, I am aware that this is a common practice in in, um, in places in Asia. They use a lot of masks. Um, they, they did that before the coronavirus ever came out. And I'm aware the CDC has currently recommended that in America. And, um, you know, some people perceive it as it protecting you, prevent, it preventing you passing infection onto other people. So we're following, currently at this moment in this country, we're following the guidance on masks, which is laid down by the WHO. And my worry about giving masks to the entire population is that there won't be, two reasons. Number one, I don't think it's necessary in our population. But number two, there won't be enough masks. There, You can never have enough masks for this thing. So I actually wouldn't be a proponent of it for the entire population, personally. But do remember, Russian, I'm not a public health specialist. Um, but I've actually just read a comment on that from the WHO director, and they, they're not fans of it either. I think if you keep more than six feet away from somebody, you should be safe. I'd imagine if you were still running the tube in London, you might want to put masks on everybody, maybe, but I presume they're not doing that anymore. I don't know, actually. Yeah. I, hope not. I think your answer really typifies the kind of thing that people are talking about you. I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes hearing nice things about you, but I read one comment, which is very typical of many comments I've read, and it said, Dr. Catherine Motherway is just one of those straight-talking, honest-to-goodness people who says it as it is, doesn't mince her words, makes me sit up and listen, and gives me hope, which we all need. What a class act. God bless her now. So- <laughs> 
you very much. My you family have, have been trying to find it very difficult because I've been doing the same thing for the last 57 years. My poor family. <laughs> my husband. Have you got children at home, Doctor? I have two children. They're both adults. My son lives in Dublin. My daughter lives in Dubai. OK. And are they worried about you at the moment? I'd say a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But I've told them I'll be fine. Um, I'm worried about them, obviously, because they're both away from home. But they're both sensible young ones. So they're they're capable of minding themselves. They're adults now. Thanks be to God. They've come up <laughs> the other end of being reared by me. So they're all right. <laughs> they're well adjusted. They are, yes. My son um, works in Dublin. He works in IT, so he's still able to work from home. My daughter's a teacher and she works in um, Dubai and she's teaching from home. And they're very strict isolation procedures there now. They're no longer allowed outside the door of their home, except to go and get food. Yeah. I didn't go for a walk anymore. So, I mean, I'm very grateful for that two kilometres for the walk. That's really vital. Exercise is really good and getting outside is good. You've been praising the Irish people for sort of adhering to the restrictions and... Which they have, as I understand it, really, they have. In terms. Yeah, I mean, is there any more we should be doing? Do you anticipate that we would get to more severe restrictions do you know, I don't know, and I'll say I'll tell you why I say this, Russia, because I am not the public health expert, and different societies can will do different things, and they do that to suit their societies. So if you do something that is too strict, and the population doesn't, uh, so to speak, embrace it, and it's impossible for them to do that, then it won't work. So I don't know what else they could do other than stop us going outside the door for the two-kilometre walk, which would be, uh, which we would all find difficult if they had to do that. Whether or not they will do further restrictions in terms of travel, I, I don't know. They're still allowing people to fly in and fly out, but I'm assuming those people have to self-isolate when they come into the country now, I'm assuming. We do need travel in and out of the country because we need to make some money. Like We need, we need to have export and import in terms of... Um, getting food out to other people and getting pharmaceuticals out to other people and then the stuff to make the pharmaceuticals to come in here, which is a big part of our industry. So we do need some form of trade. I mean, it's, I suppose when you plan for something like this, you have to make sure there's food, you have to make sure there's electricity, you have to make sure there's water, you have to make sure there's health care. And hopefully at the end of all that, the population remains the same. I do think the weekend coming ahead with the beautiful weather is going to be very difficult for people to sit in there and look out at us. But... That's what they have to do because if they relax them too early, this virus will do what it did initially. And thus far, we've managed to prevent that as a population. And I've always said it's the population that actually fixes this, not the hospitals. Think about it like life rest. So this is if we fall off the boat, we're going to catch you. Please God, but we want the boat to keep going and not to actually hit a big iceberg at the end of the day. Um, well, speaking of the healthcare workers and the life rafts, around 25% of the cases in Ireland are healthcare workers. So how has your team been affected and the wider teams in the hospitals and the ICUs? At the beginning of this for us, one of our um, index cases was actually a healthcare worker. Um, and that resulted in us having a lot of our healthcare workers going off work. A number of the early healthcare workers were related to travel and the numbers still are. Some are related to community spread and some are related to um, transmission within the hospital. I don't have those figures. I know that some of the early ones that would have been transmitted in the hospital would have been related to patients who were in the hospital and were not diagnosed, so they weren't wearing PPE because it was before we realised that there was community transmission. And so that highlights to me the importance of PPE. I think if we have access to good PPE, that will keep us at work and that's really important for people to realise. Um, I do think that when we go outside the door 
we need to remember to behave like the rest of the population. So we have to do the social distancing. We have to do the standing in the queue two miles away from further. We have to make sure we don't actually interact socially with our colleagues outside of work unless they are actually part of our immediate family unit. So we should be safe at work if we have the PPE. We should be safe at the community if we do the social interactions. It is going to be a bit more, like it is, we're going to be more exposed. So um, if we wear the PPE to the best of our ability, we should minimize transmission to ourselves. So, and, and I, I do think the early cases, a lot of them are related to taking care of patients who would utilize the disease and a significant number actually related to travel because like everybody else, we all went off skiing and did all that sort of stuff. And so like, that's, that's what they were the initial transmissions and some of us may get it from our, our family members. So, I mean, that's just, the way life is, but we're all going to, we're all being very careful uh, as best we can to make sure we can continue to work and to make sure that we continue to remain well and not bring it home to our families. Yeah, and I know there's only a limited amount you can say about ICU capacity and I know you've been preparing for weeks in terms of this surge that is gradually starting to happen. But how are you feeling now about the capacity situation? As I said at the outset, we started from a low base. And I've said publicly, it is my belief that we can at least double our capacity, albeit temporarily and with um, significant redeployment of staff. So Dublin at the moment has, um, as you know, uh, began, uh, I mean, they're actually in the middle of a surge and they are coping. They are coping. They are working in some units beyond capacity, but in their surge capacity. So there is more people in ICU beds um, in Dublin then they would normally be able to accommodate because they've gone and used spaces that they have prepared and they are coping and they have redeployed staff. But they are coping because the surge has been managed. Outside of Dublin, I think we're still working mostly within capacity, but certainly in my hospital, we're beginning to see a surge in admissions to the Hospital of Medical Admissions. And there's two reasons for that, we think. One of them we're glad of because we think people are now actually coming to the hospital when they should because they were staying away from the hospital for fear of getting COVID-19 when they needed to come to us. And we're very keen for them to come to us. If they have a heart attack or a stroke, it's much better to come in quickly. So we think we're now seeing people coming back to us and presenting in a timely fashion, which is really good. But also we are seeing more um, cases with respiratory symptoms. So we are, uh, you know, think that we may experience some surge. We have prepared extra capacity in UHL. They've prepared extra capacity everywhere. And at the moment, we know that there is um, capacity in the system, albeit beyond what we normally do. So we, we're we obviously worried about exceeding capacity, but we haven't got there yet. And if we are getting there, we'll let you know even more. We'll have to let you know. So, but we do still have capacity in the system. And I know that in Dublin, some hospitals had to transfer patients from one hospital to the other in the last week, and they had to transfer, um, and, and that's happened in at least three sites but there was always capacity to cope for it at the moment. And we have made significant plans. And more than Italy, we, we, had, um, we had time. They didn't have time. Now, they were much yeah. better resourced than we were. But, and they've, they've, you know, well, we've had time. And they have a much older, more densely packed population than we have. Um, we we're a young population. We're one of the youngest populations in Europe. We have the oldest, the, the, um, the lowest death rate and the highest birth rate in Europe. We consistently have had that for the last 10 years. Um, obviously, when you got into intensive care medicine, you were used to extreme situations and that's kind of what you were going into. But nothing could really prepare anybody for this. So how have you been coping emotionally, mentally, spiritually with, with all that's been going on in the last while? That's been interesting, yes. Um, 
Emotionally, I would say, uh, I know a lot of my, we didn't sleep, I didn't sleep right. I'd say for the first, after the Italian situation broke, I'd say I didn't sleep right for about three weeks. Um, I exercise a lot as it happens. Um, I like to go out for walks. I happen to like my dog. I even like my husband. So talking to him who is non-medical is quite useful. Um, so I, I use exercise a lot. I go home and talk a lot. I think we've begun to acclimatize to um, the permanent state of anxiety that we all have about whether or not we can cope. And we have, like we've, we've seen, we've made capacity, we've stopped things, we've, we've, we've prepared as best we can. So now I say there's a little bit of anticipation waiting for things to start up and that's happened already in Dublin and my colleagues are working in Dublin, they're busy but they're coping and they've changed the way they work, they've changed the way their rosters have worked, we've changed the way we work here so now we're um, you know, we have more, we've doubled the number of people on call. So we're available more often, but there's a lot more of us there just in case we get a lot of admissions all at once, which is what happened in some hospitals in Italy. So I'd say most of us were very anxious. Most of us are still mildly anxious. I think once we hit the surge and start working, it'll settle a bit and we'll just keep on going. And that's all you can do. We're just basically in a state of anxiety, but just you'll just work away and please God, we'll do a good job of it. Doctor, a lot of the conversations I'm having with friends are about what we're learning about ourselves in this time. Have you learned anything about yourself, either as a professional or just as a civilian? I'm probably very good at going up to people and saying, you know, a lot going up to people, pointing out to them as I'm passing, that's not six foot, move apart. <laughs> they hate me, I say. They go, you know, you're too near, you're too near, they're apart. Um, so I do challenge people a bit more than I probably ordinarily would have because it's so important. Um Am I learning anything more about myself? Oh, I don't know. I never thought I'd be able to talk to a lot of reporters like this. This is really um, not something that I ever thought I'd have to do. Um, but I hope I'm getting the message across appropriately. And, well, I've always, I suppose because we work, you know, we see some terrible things and I see you. So I think for the last 20 years, I've always, um, I've never taken any, any day for granted anymore because we see terrible things happen to people out of the blue. So I've generally tried in the moment, part to be grateful for what I have, and as my mother says, count my blessings. Um, I've suffered personal loss, as, as in most people in their lives, so I've always counted my blessings and said a prayer when everything has gone well, uh, or uh, if, if, you, if you're not religious, you could do whatever. So I don't know, really, if I learned anything about it other than the fact that we can just, all we can do is just keep working together and, you know, and challenge people who are interfering with you, which we haven't had much of that now, thankfully, in the in the, work, in the service, but occasionally you have to remind people. You live in Galway. Um, have you any message for anybody thinking of heading westward to, from Dublin to their nice holiday home by the sea uh, this weekend that thinks that's a perfectly fine thing to do and look at the weather and sure what else would you be doing? You'd be staying at home, washing your hands and not in any way, shape or form thinking of going anywhere outside of your own immediate circle. And that also means that you do not go down to the west of Ireland and go into a shop and potentially transmit disease to the lovely shopkeeper or transmit disease to the other person who's decided to do exactly the same thing as you or, in fact, you know, get sick and end up going into a hospital in the west of Ireland where you won't be able to, your relatives won't be able to come down and visit you. So you need to stay exactly where you are, do what you've been asked to do, which, to be fair, I think most people will do. Wash your hands, 
And every time you do so, think about the fact that this has made a bed for somebody else. It's made a bed for your next door neighbour who might have a heart attack or it's made a bed for somebody who might be unfortunate enough to catch, uh, to have a stroke. That's what you need to do. You need not to get into your car and drive any further than you need to do. Don't assume just because you're going to stay in your own little box and you'll drive down the road and there won't be any problems. You know, you could have a puncture. Anything could happen where you'd have to interact with other people and you should not interact in any way, shape or form with anybody other than the people with whom you currently live. Is that clear? That's that's very, very clear. And I think it's very well put. And uh, it's a, it's amazing to me that you haven't been doing this talking to media all your life because you're flipping brilliant at it. Sorry, you don't have to do the OJ's thing. My mother is terrified I'll say both bad words. God love her. Have you any idea when this will be over, when we can go out into the world again? Oh, I don't know, to be honest with you. One of the things that worries me, you know, you know, that we talk about flattening the curve and you see the way there's a big short curve. Obviously, if we flatten the curve, it's going to last a bit longer, but it means that we will be able to cope in the hospitals. So the area under the curve is still the same. Now, I mean, I could give you time to, number one, make sure we have enough resources to potentially find decent medication that might possibly um, help. Um, because at the moment, all we can do is support people and three, wait for the, the vaccine. Now, they keep telling me vaccines are a year, year and a half. I'm praying to God that they've gotten better at that, personally. I would imagine that there is, I don't know how long they'll keep the restrictions going for, but I'd say we will have a significant amount of restrictions for several weeks. They still re, they've only just started to go back out in Wuhan, and we have to wait to see what happens. Um, because I think, if you remember this famous Spanish flu, which they keep comparing to, they had a second surge when everybody went out and about again. Nice. So we need to be really careful. I think we will be standing away from each other for quite some time. And if we are going back to work, you'll be going to work to offices that are maybe half full as opposed to fuller. And they'll be far more careful about things like public transport for, I would say, for quite some time. I don't think I'll be flying off to Tenerife in the near future, unfortunately. OK, well, when it is over, you and all the people working on the front line in this country deserve big, huge holidays and all the cheers and claps that you're getting at the doorsteps. And on behalf of the Women's Podcast, we just all like to say thank you very much for everything you're doing. Can I say one other thing before I stop? Yeah. I think the other people that we need to think about and thank, well, there are the farmers, the, the food workers, the people who are actually stocking our shelves, the people who are keeping petrol stations open, and the other bunch of people that I'm so sorry for are people who have lost their jobs. They've made a huge sacrifice for our safety and I, anyone thinking of going anywhere, think about somebody who no longer can afford their mortgage, who certainly can't afford to go somewhere else and who's lost their job in an effort to save the rest of us and our bacon and that might hopefully also concentrate minds. Yeah. I am so sorry for those people. It's just awful. No, it's terrible and I don't think we're going to, we're going to be a long time counting the cost of this, I think, in so many different ways. So long as there's a whole lot of us to count it, we'll all fix this together. Yeah. I see, that's that lovely, hopeful thing that you do. It's brilliant. Um, Dr. Catherine Motherway, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. That was Dr. Catherine Motherway there and it was a real pleasure uh, and honour to talk to her. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. Now, it has emerged that the number of women being abused by their partners in Ireland has risen because of the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. There are reports of an increase in calls to the Gardaí and some women have had to seek refuge in their cars to call for help as the crisis creates a pressure cooker situation in households across the country. We're being told to stay at home, but for some women, home is the most unsafe place to be 
And while we talk about a global pandemic, we need to also acknowledge a global domestic abuse pandemic because all over the world, from Wuhan to Milan to Dublin, we are hearing of the same terrible trend. To discuss this, we spoke to Women's Aid Chief Executive Sarah Benson, who told us that some abusive partners are even manipulating this awful situation by using the virus as a weapon, especially against women in the high-risk health category. It was very sobering to hear, but also very necessary. But first, I spoke to a survivor of domestic abuse to get an insight into what women in these situations might be going through right now. Bernie Darcy is now in a happy, healthy relationship, but spent a long time being isolated and manipulated by her partner and eventually raped by him before she was helped to escape her situation. I began by asking Bernie her thoughts now when it comes to women in the same situation. I've been thinking about them over the last few weeks and um, especially for things like when you go to the shops, if you're being timed, you're actually losing time um, having to queue outside. And like when you come home then to try and explain this, you probably get beaten because you were longer than the normal, within the normal time frame given to somebody um, that's been abused. Or even when you go to shops, you won't get all the ingredients for the meal that's been demanded. And that's another thing which can bring more abuse on you. There's not space. If you're in a small apartment, uh, there's not space to um, get out of your abuser's reach. Um, a look, even if they think that you look at them, you've actually looked at them in the wrong way. Um, no matter what way you look, it's not right all the time. The fact that they can't get out, that will make them more tetchy. And everything you do is heightens their irritation, which brings more abuse. It's literally a lose-lose situation for anybody in an abusive situation. Being locked in with their abuser, it's making them more accessible to their abuser. Because, Bernie, when you were in that situation, I suppose it was it was dreadful and it took you a long time to get out of it and it really escalated. But did you have a sense of being able to go out and being able to reach out to friends and also being able to just escape from the situation sometimes? Um, I'm thinking about the people that are cut off now because their work, possibly they're not in a work situation where they're um, needed like a nurse or in retail like that um, possibly work like myself, work was the only place that you could actually go to to escape. And um, if they don't have their work, um, because they maybe they've been isolated from friends like I was, um, maybe they don't have friends to reach out. So mm. what they can do mm. is make calls to Women's Aid. I myself was um, a caller to Women's Aid and my first few calls were late at night. And um, I was what you call a silent caller because I didn't have the courage to speak up. And I was also afraid of being heard, even though he was at the other side of the house fast asleep. I kept on thinking he was going to barge into the kitchen every time I made a call. So I'd hang up and I'd say tomorrow, tomorrow night. But if we, people don't have um, their work, 
to be able to get out now um, is next to impossible because even to go for a walk, your abuser will say, I'm coming with you. Now, I discovered that my abuser didn't like walking in the woods. So I'd actually I'd actually go to the woods. He had a fear of the woods. That was my only escape. So unless people can find some weakness in their abuser, they're totally locked in with them. We're going to hear later from Sarah Benson, the CEO of Women's Aid, actually, Bernie. And she has been talking about the fact that some of these um, people have been actually using coronavirus as a way to manipulate and scare their partners further. So particularly if people have um, health issues, you know, coughing on them and doing various things like that. Does that surprise you or is that sort of what you can imagine how an abuser would use something like coronavirus to hurt their partner further? That's not surprising because um, all types of abuse are used and now they will use spitting and coughing as another form of abuse instead of like, uh, well, I suppose as well as verbal and physical abuse and financial abuse and psychological abuse, they'll use everything to keep their victim weak and under their control. And unless um, the victim gets the courage to literally stand up and say, like, I've had enough, which is very, very hard. People say, well, why don't you just get out? It's not that easy. It's a whole process. And to get the courage to get out, you actually need something to trigger you to see into seeking help. And to get the courage then to take that step to actually make the call to seek help is another step in the whole process of getting out. This can take months, it can take years to get out. It's not as simple as saying, well, you're abused, get out. Yeah. Bernie, can you tell us about your trigger and sort of the outcome of that when you finally did uh, get free? I was being abused for months and um, I we were in a house and I was working at the time in Best Menswear in a small town on the East Coast. And um, while I was being abused, I managed it. Um, he managed to hit me where I hadn't got bruises, so I managed to hide it. I'd put on my suit and I'd go into work. Um, the trigger for me was when um, I was in work and I asked security for... Um, to not let him into the shopping centre that I was working in. And I showed him, when I was asked for a photograph, I showed the security guy a photograph of my estranged husband. And um, he said, sure, he can't come in. He's barred from the centre and he's barred from Tesco's. And I just looked um, kind of like, what? My trigger was when um, he stole from people outside. Um, he stole um, from handbags from elderly women, even though I was give, handing up every cent I had spare after paying the rent. For me, it was bad enough that he was abusing me, but for him to start abusing strangers, that just was way beyond my comprehension. So I... Um, contacted uh, Women's Aid and um, before this I had contacted the guards and they had um, come to the house numerous times 
And um, I had to let him in because his name was on the lease. But um, over time, I built up the courage and um, I eventually, with the help of my brother, I threw him out and I got um, a safety order. My mistake when I went to court was uh, when the judge offered me a barring order. For me, psychologically, it was final. And I wasn't ready to admit that my second marriage was a failure. My biggest mistake was not taking that barring order to just go for a safety order because while he respected the safety order for a short time, he didn't respect it fully and he didn't respect it all the time. So when he performed, his family didn't know um, what was going on. But we were up in Drogheda at um, a family Holy Communion and he started abusing me in front of everybody. I did what I was trained by Women's Aid through their counselling. I picked up my bag and I walked out. I left where I felt abused and family members followed me. I showed them my safety order and told them that I should have got a barring order. So take whatever you're handed. Don't say I'm not ready for this. Bernie, I really appreciate you telling your story because I know it's difficult to go over those times that were so uh, traumatic. But would you have a message for anybody listening or anybody who knows somebody who's going through something like this at this particular really difficult time? What would you say to them? I'd say to them to get the courage and seek help. And if you're somebody that's supporting a person going through abuse, Women's Aid is also there to advise you. Even though I've used the services myself, when I'm contacted by other women who need help, I still ring up Women's Aid and I seek their advice so that I can give people I'm helping proper advice. Don't take the abuse Put yourself in a safe room, lock yourself in the bathroom and ring women's aid. Don't stay. To, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It escalates. Mine ended up, that was, ended up with marital rape, which didn't get to court because of lack of evidence. But he threatened to kill me at one stage. And I reckon if I hadn't got the courage to walk out, I'd be a statistic today with all the other women that were killed in Ireland through domestic violence. Get out before you're carried out in a body bag. That's my message to people today. Thanks very much, Bernie. And we should say that you are in a happy, healthy relationship now. So there is yes. a light at the end of the tunnel if you can get that courage. Definitely. I'm in a very, very happy, loving relationship right now. And... Life turned around 100%. Um, I've got my courage back to tell my story and to live my life again. And there is lots and lots of support and your friends. When you reconnect, if you're isolated from your friends, if they're true friends, they will understand when you ring them again. Why? If they don't understand, they're not true friends and you will make friends again. Bernie, I just want to say thank you so much. And I'm very glad to hear that you're in a happy and healthy relationship now. And I think your words um, are so important, especially at this time when literally for some people, the home that they're being told to stay in is the scariest and most unsafe place. 
I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you very much. Thanks a million, Roisin. Thank you. That was Bernie Darcy there. And thanks very much to her for speaking out about something so difficult. We wish her well. Now, as I mentioned already, for some women who are being told to stay at home, it's the worst possible place to be. Imagine being stuck with a person who has made it their life's work to make your life as miserable as possible, physically, mentally and emotionally. Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, spoke to me about the domestic abuse pandemic. Sarah, thanks very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Uh, Domestic abuse in this pandemic is um, something that we're increasingly worried about here on the podcast. And I know everyone who works in that sector is too. Uh, just by the fact of what's going on and how it's um, increasing the difficulties for various people in situations in different homes across the country. Can you tell us, first of all, whether there is a kind of domestic abuse pandemic is how I've seen it described happening around Ireland? Yeah, I think that one of the important things that we've been trying to highlight over the last number of weeks is that while we're all engaged in a really important community action to protect public health and to protect vulnerable uh, people who may be, you know, in the high risk categories for COVID-19. At the same time, uh, so many of the things that we are being asked to do create a very real and direct risk to increased uh, levels of domestic abuse. Because if you're in your own home and it's a safe place to be, that's great. But if home is the least safe place to be and we're being required to stay there pretty well 24-7, you can imagine the kinds of circumstances that predominantly women in abusive relationships are are experiencing right now. So, you know, where there already was abuse, women would be reporting, you know, not just the kind of tactics of abuse that are used against them, but the the feelings of fear, feeling isolated, of feeling like you're constantly walking on eggshells. And right now, what we're hearing through our services is just those levels of fear and tension and anxiety are escalating through the roof um, through our 24-hour helpline. That, that's something that we've noted particularly is that, you know, everything has become exacerbated, you know, where already these situations were bad. And in the calls that you're receiving now, Sarah, how often is coronavirus and this pandemic being cited as having exacerbated the situations? Is that something you're hearing on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, what what our helpline team are telling us and indeed our um, our outreach workers who have kind of moved more to telephone support of the ongoing cases that, uh, you know, that they would be assisting is that there there's rarely any uh, contact at the moment where there isn't some component of the response to COVID-19 that isn't being cited as creating additional stresses and strains and also restrictions. Because, you know, if you think about what people do when they're in abusive relationships, very often they will try and gain respite as, as, as a coping strategy. You know, they might go down to a brother or sister's house or they may go to their parents' house. And at the moment, you know, we can't do that. If the parent is over 70, they're cocooning, so it's absolutely out. And so, you know, you can imagine apartments, houses where every single room feels like, you know, a a potential battleground and you've got nowhere to go to get away from it. So, yeah, it's coming up again and again and again. And what about um, abusive partners? Are they manipulating the dangers posed by the virus to threaten their victims? So is COVID-19 actually being used as part of the abuse? Are you hearing that? We have heard that from quite a number of uh, of callers, in fact, um, and particularly those who may themselves have underlying health conditions, for example, is where, you know, where somebody is 
abusive in a relationship. It is fundamentally about power and control, and it isn't about a single abusive tactic. There, there will be a suite of, of coercive controlling tactics that will be used, which can include, you know, uh, also kind of threatening behaviour. And so, unfortunately, in some situations, we are hearing the actual kind of weaponizing effectively of the COVID-19 itself, where abusive partners are deliberately coughing on, you know, on women, where they are going out and, uh, you know, and refusing to abide by any of the health um, measures, you know, washing hands, anything like that, making women feel like their entire home has been contaminated, you know, keeping them locked in their room. So, yes, unfortunately, where somebody is minded to be abusive, they will use whatever tactics and tools that become at their disposal. And this has unfortunately become one of them. And obviously as well, and that's just horrific to think of that people being stuck in places with people coughing on them. Oh, my God, like it's just horrible. Uh, But also this whole situation is leading to a lot of money worries and unemployment for people. And those things are known to increase um, incidences of domestic violence as well, aren't they? So that must be a factor. Yeah, well, financial or economic abuse are really sometimes underreported or underrecognized forms of abuse in in a dynamic of of domestic violence. But you know, it makes absolute sense if if somebody controls the money uh, and the means, then the person who does not have access to money and means also has limited options. If you if you have no money to get somewhere, you know, then you can't go. If you don't have money to drive somewhere or to to find alternative accommodation or whatever that might be. So uh, economic abuse in and of itself is a really quite a common tactic and a very effective tactic. And then, as you rightly mentioned, there's the additional and slightly separate point of where there was money and perhaps now there isn't that it creates higher levels of tension and stress in an already you know stressful situation. And so, yes, of course, those kind of changes in a household can be Somebody who who is already lashing out at their partner may use that as an excuse to lash out further. And at the same time, then the the victim in that situation may have less means to actually try and um, get away and become independent themselves. So all of these create what we refer to as as acute pressure points. Um, You know, so these are worries. And, you know, and then you may have, um, you know, women who, uh, you know, have themselves lost their jobs and are feeling the additional stress and anxiety of that, in addition to having to cope with uh, an abusive dynamic in their home. What are you advising then uh, people? And I suppose we can say it's mostly women. Obviously, there are some men who experience abuse, but on the whole, uh, the people you're dealing with are mostly women. What are you advising people? Because if you're stuck in 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 an abusive household at this time, I mean, there literally is nowhere to go. What what help can you give? Well, you know, sometimes just not feeling alone, depending on the, the, the severity, the nature of the abuse, just being connected to somebody, feeling that somebody understands what's going on, that, you, you know, you're not going crazy in terms of some of the very kind of gaslighting behavior that some women are subjected to. So just being connected and knowing that people are there to help and to offer support is really important. So for ourselves, the Specialist Domestic Violence Services, our National Free Phone Helpline is available 24-7. It's still fully personed. We're also aware that for some, making a telephone call might be a difficult thing to do. And so we've extended our online chat, which is available through the womensaid.ie website, so people can kind of engage silently and try and get support and information while there are restrictions, certainly at the moment, on an already under-resourced refuge, um, 
sector, you know, there, there may be options for refuge as emergency accommodation if somebody really does need to flee. And and we would urge people to, to look at, you know, the Safe Ireland website, for example, for details of their local services. There is a service for men as well. There's the Men's Advice Line that have a free phone number. It's run by the Men's Development Network. I should say our helpline number is 1-800-341-900. So there are specialist services, you know, support is there. But I think the other thing is if somebody feels at risk, in any way at risk, the Gardaí have been very clear in naming this as as a as a top policing priority at the moment. So if you're feeling in danger at all, you should call 112 or 999 you know, because the Gardaí have a really important role in, in terms of safety. Um, and uh, and then there is our community response. I think one of the really important things I'd like to convey is that we have to be mindful that it's always difficult in an abusive situation to articulate what's going on and to be the one who proactively has to reach out and get help. That's one of the reasons that, you know, so many women will contact our helpline and we may be the first person they've ever spoken to about it. And, you know, it may take a large amount of non-judgmental listening, believing, supporting, encouraging for that person then perhaps to reach out either to a family member or to the Gardaí or to, you know, or to the courts, whatever the need is. So it's really difficult at the best of times to seek help from an abusive relationship. So more than ever now, when people are in constrained circumstances, we need not to put the pressure on the person who's suffering to to seek their own help. And so as a community, we need to be proactive. We need to be vigilant. If we think somebody may be in a bad situation, you know, if there's a way to reach out, just offer a, a, a kind word through WhatsApp or through text or an email or whatever it might be, just to say, you know, I'm here if you need anything. Um, and if if somebody hears something, you know, perhaps happening next door again, if in doubt, please don't hesitate to, to contact the guards. In some cases, people are talking about having a safe word that they could maybe send to somebody, you know, a sister, a brother, a parent, if they feel I need you to call me or I need you to call somebody to help me. So we need to be creative, but, but more than anything, we need to make sure that people don't end up isolated and feeling alone in this situation. I used the phrase domestic violence pandemic, Sarah, uh, without trying to be alarmist or whatever, but numbers, calls to the guards have increased, haven't they? I mean, it does seem as though there are more incidences of domestic abuse happening through this crisis. Yeah, what the Gardaí have reported is actually year on year uh, increases, quite significant increases in, in the call outs on domestic violence. and. They would point to it for that an increase in public awareness of the issue, which is a good thing, which, you know, we know that there's a severe underreporting, certainly to, to Gardaí, um, of domestic violence. So if our public conversation has opened up to encourage more people to, to speak out and reach out and, um, uh, and others to reach out to those in need, then that's great. They have been a little hesitant about the, the increase directly correlated to the COVID-19, but they have accepted that they have started to see some increase. And certainly when we look at, and we would be in contact in Women's Aid with similar organisations in other jurisdictions, they are definitively seeing a spike. So I think we have to just, uh, you know, uh, realise that that, that, is, that is a very strong likelihood. And I mean, it's being mirrored all over the world as well. Reports from China, um, in France, you know, where the government has encouraged victims to discreetly seek help at pharmacies. I think in Italy, uh, women are being asked to, to do that too. Is there something like that for here in Ireland where uh, somebody could go into a chemist, for, for example, and, and uh, 
talk to the pharmacist about what's going on with them? Do we have a similar? We don't. Yeah, the initiative you're talking about is one I think that's happening in France at the moment. Um, We don't have something that is uh, kind of universally coordinated through a particular uh, sector like pharmacies. But but what I would say is people can act creatively on an individual level, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of setting up safe word communication and things like that with people that they're worried about. But I'm pleased to say that the Department of Justice is taking this very seriously and they are about to launch an awareness campaign again just to make those you know who may be struggling um or suffering and, and you mentioned um for some who perhaps their their relationship wasn't very abusive before but certainly has it may be becoming more abusive if they're starting to feel worried so the department are going to be running a number of kind of mainstream campaigns or ads through mainstream media but there's also consideration being given to signposting and awareness raising through some of those services which are still considered essential and open you know and that may be signposting to you know maybe posters stickers just making people aware of services that that may be there for themselves or for somebody they may be worried about but uh we haven't got something quite the same as as what they have done in france yeah but at the same time it is really positive to see a rallying round not just of the community and voluntary sector, but also the statutory services as well to try and highlight this as an issue throughout the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Just to clarify what I said there, it is the French government have encouraged victims to discreetly seek help at pharmacies. And they're also, the government in France have also promised to subsidise thousands of hotel rooms where victims can quarantine in safety, which is amazing. And in Italy, the government have launched a new app that will enable uh, victims to ask for help without making a phone call. These are really sort of creative, innovative ways, aren't they, to help people? Yeah, for sure. And and actually the matter of accommodation and emergency accommodation is something that that Women's Aid, that Safe Ireland, and that many of the specialist domestic violence accommodation services have been raising at government level and at local authority level to look for creative solutions to try and make sure that those who may be fleeing domestic violence, you know, predominantly it will be women and children, but anyone who's having to leave their home through violence is given visibility and priority through whatever strategies are being employed for the homeless uh, sector at the moment. There has been a disconnect historically between refuge and the homeless strategy, whereas effectively, you know, you become homeless if you have to leave your home through domestic violence. So there's a real opportunity here to join these two service components up. And so looking at Airbnb or apart hotels or, or others is something that we would really like to see. And also at the same time, Safe Ireland have been, um, you know, also discussing with with the, the members around other creative means, you know, could we could we see a, a flexible, you know, short term rent supplement, for example, for somebody who needs to, to get away for a few months until they can find alternatives after the emergency. So a lot of creative thinking going on. Also, while the courts remain open at the moment for people who may wish to seek uh, protection orders or interim barring orders, we know that people are constrained in being able to get out to go to court. So, you know, we with others are looking at are there ways procedurally that the courts could better accommodate people to apply for temporary protection through, you know, remote means as they're looking at trying to conduct other court business through remote means. So I think we're looking at anything that will help innovations, creative thinking. So it's concentrated minds in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have in other times. And perhaps when we come out of this, 
we'll have good learning and perhaps some good practices that will, you know, be able to sustain e- even when we don't have the COVID-19 emergency. Yeah, well, that's something to hope for anyway. Um, in your other job, Sarah, your previous job to this, you were CEO of Ruhama, which is the NGO working nationally with women affected by sex work, prostitution and victims of sex trafficking. Are there any issues in that um, area that we should be aware of? Well, I know that Ruhama continued to kind of offer as much support to any woman, uh, indeed, uh, or, or man or, or trans woman who may be in a difficult situation of prostitution or indeed who may have been trafficked. We would have, just generally speaking, I think we really need to be mindful of just how vulnerable people in that situation are. You do have, of course, and, and, and across the globe, there's a complete drop off in terms of demand for the purchase of sex. And so that's very interesting in that (laughs) we have long campaigned. uh, And when I say we, Women's Aid would have supported things like the Turn Off the Red Light campaign, you know, along with most of the other, uh, in fact, nearly all of the other Violence Against Women organisations and uh, the likes of the Men's Development Network and the unions, because the demand is so clearly the driver of the sex trade. Um, And so what we've seen is, of course, demand has, has dropped off a cliff because of the kinds of restrictions that are that are in place. But what that does leave is some very, very vulnerable people, some of whom are maybe still being forced into situations against their own will because they are, are being trafficked to uh, engage in prostitution, even when the risks become exponentially higher. It's always high risk. And then you also, I think it's really important to, to acknowledge in Ireland, the vast majority of those in the sex trade are migrants. Many are undocumented migrants are here on precarious um visas and they will be perhaps largely invisible at the moment but there is no doubt that they're going to be struggling and so more at a broad level I think it's really important to make sure that as a, a as a government response as a community response we're really mindful of vulnerable migrants who may not have any means who may be at risk of homelessness um you know and just simply falling through the cracks so um that that's in the round not just those who may be um involved in the the commercial sex trade. I think we have really vulnerable cohorts that we need to to remember right now. Sarah, I mean, I know this is going to sound a bit like, yeah, obvious, but it just it just does break my heart. And I know many of our listeners to think that people um, are in homes around this country are being taken further advantage of and being abused because of this um, pandemic. Do you know like that people would actually use a situation like this in order to hurt the people in their lives more. Um, I know that you mentioned it earlier that that's what abusers do. They take advantage of whatever situation they can, but it's still just horrific. Yeah. For those who would choose not to hurt somebody you're supposed to love, it defies all logic that anyone would behave that way. And, you know, and I'd want to affirm that there are many, many, many who don't, you know, uh, but unfortunately there is there is that proportion of those who will seek to get their needs met without any due regard for, in fact, utter reckless disregard for the well-being and safety and uh, comfort of the person who they're in a relationship with. So it, it is hard to to think about. But the fact is, domestic violence was a global pandemic before this ever happened. It yes. is one of the most common forms of violence used. It is perhaps the singular most significant uh, factor in the murder of women across the world. So unfortunately, it's something that we have to contend with all the time uh, and even more so at the moment. I think what you're saying, though, 
And what I'm here, what I hear and what I'm, I'm really gratified to hear more and more as, you know, we've been discussing this publica over the last number of weeks is that the tolerance for our acceptance, perhaps not acceptance, but, but you know, lack of proactive disapproval of domestic violence seems to have shifted. And I think more than ever, it's really important that we all stand up, men and women together, and talk about how absolutely unacceptable it is to behave like that towards somebody who you're supposed to be in a loving, caring relationship with. Because ignoring something or, you know, looking sideways or or going silent when somebody speaks in a disparaging manner about their partner, all of that can be taken as a tacit acceptance that that behavior is okay, even if that's not intended. So more and more, I think, we need to speak out and now more than ever speak out and say that, you know, anybody who's abusive to their partner uh, is behaving in a way that's simply socially unacceptable. I think that's a really excellent point. And maybe when they find the vaccine for this terrible disease, um, we can move on to finding some sort of permanent solution to uh, the global pandemic, as you mentioned there, of domestic abuse, which was there before COVID-19 ever came into our lives. Uh, and it's interesting, though, I mean, maybe this is probably another maybe another podcast to discuss, but that you wish that it was taken as seriously worldwide as this is being. Yeah, absolutely. You know, domestic violence is 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 part of a continuum of gender based violence. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It isn't about individuals behaving abusively towards other individuals. It is part of a system which, I, you know, is rooted in gender inequality. And unfortunately, you know, even in countries like Ireland, we still have a long way to go in broader issues of gender equality, which do actually feed into prevalence of those forms of gender-based violence, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, uh, rape, FGM, prostitution and trafficking we've mentioned and we need to really push forward around representation, uh, you know, women in politics, recognition of care, equal pay. All of those things contribute to every incremental gain we make towards gender equality is about making a better society, not just for women and girls, but also for men and boys. And the more we tilt away at that, the more we will see gender-based violence reducing because we see in countries where you don't have legislation, for example, against marital rape or child marriage or all of those things. You do have higher levels of gender-based violence. So we do know that pushing both the social message of the unacceptability of all forms of, of gender-based violence, while at the same time trying to push forward for equality, does start to tip the balance um, you know, away from, from uh, higher levels of abuse. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're speaking there about our education system as well and the way we talk to young boys and young girls about sex, about relationships. I mean, those things, we can go a long way there as well and that all helps. Yeah, absolutely key. As, as a mother of a son and a daughter, um, that really resonates strongly with me. It's, you know, so much of it is simply about how we see each other and there are still unfortunately so many sexist tropes that but that impact both boys and girls yeah. uh, unfortunately that that is really still there but it's you know how we see each other how how we see the opportunities for each other you know in terms of our lives in terms of our careers in terms of our roles our behaviors that all starts the moment a child is born so you know primary level if not you know in kind of early early childcare services i think that really 
promoting those messages of equality, respect. And that isn't about saying everybody is the same. There are differences, but that bringing those differences together only creates a, a you know, a stronger society and, uh, and as I say, a more equal society. So I think education is absolutely key as early as possible. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, I think we just need to reiterate what you just said there. The patriarchy is not just damaging to women and girls. It's been damaging men and boys and putting them into a narrow box for, for centuries, which uh, we don't want them to be in either. We want men as well to be able to express themselves and be who they are, not what the patriarchy tells them they are, um, which is a whole bigger conversation again. It is, but it's an important one. <laughs> and it's really important in terms of how, if we're really going to tackle this issue, it's 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 kind of to the root of it. And it's to show that it's beneficial for men and boys as well as women and girls. And I, I just think that that's how we're going to hopefully uh, sort it out eventually. Maybe it will never be fully sorted out, but certainly reduce the amount of it going on around the world. And Sarah, of course, we should mention all the children around the country who are being affected by this, whose mothers and in some small cases, their fathers are being abused. Yeah, it's really important, um, firstly, to to realise that if there is abuse in a household and there are children there, that even witnessing or being subjected to, um, you know, uh, hearing parents uh, you know, one parent abusing the other is itself a form of abuse. It's a form of emotional abuse of children. But sadly, we also know that if there's violence in a house that is being targeted towards the mother, um, then it is often also being targeted towards the children. And so, you know, we, we mustn't forget that um, we may have, you know, many thousands of children right now as well who are also living in fear and, you know, supporting the non-abusing parent in that situation is fundamental to supporting those children also. Uh, Sarah, thank you very much for talking to me. Could you just finish by letting any listeners who are either in uh, difficult situations at the moment, dangerous situations, or people who may be observing their friends or their neighbours or anyone in their community having a hard time in terms of um, this issue, what they can do? Well, as I mentioned, there is uh, support out there. Firstly, if somebody feels that they are at risk or in danger or is fearful for, for the safety of somebody else, please contact the Gardaí on 999 or 112. The Women's Aid Helpline is available uh, 24-7 on 1800 900 If you don't feel you can speak or indeed if you're deaf or hard of hearing, uh, please look at our website for our instant chat, which is available Monday Wednesday and Friday, 7 till 10. And at the moment, there's also extra hours being put in by our trained team. So keep an eye on the website, womensaid.ie. And then for listings of all the other local support services around the country, uh, safeireland.ie will have all the listings of those as well. Okay, Sarah, I really appreciate you talking to us. I think it's it's a really important issue and it's, it's sort of a hidden one. And I think it's only going to be after this is all over, that we really see the cost and the damage that's been done to mostly women, but as we said, uh, some men as well. And that's going to make very difficult uh, listening and reading as we as we move on. But, w- but we've got to keep um, looking at it and working on it. So thanks for everything you and all your team are doing. Thanks, Roisin. And that's all we have time for today. Do stay safe. Do stay home. Thanks very much to our guests, Bernie Darcy, Sarah Benson and Dr. Catherine Motherway. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. 
The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan, with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you